Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done. Perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20. Today on CityCast DC, a jury has convicted a DC police officer of murder in the case of Karan Hilton Brown. Another officer was convicted of trying to cover it up. Mitch Riles from City Paper has been covering the twisting case from the beginning. He's here to tell us about it and what it means about the state of policing in DC. It's Monday, January 9th, 2023. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Mitch Riles, you've been following the Hilton Brown trial for Washington City Paper since the two officers were indicted, which was in 2021. They were accused of illegally chasing 20-year-old Karan Hilton Brown through D.C. streets. He was ultimately hit by another car and he was killed. One officer was convicted of second-degree murder over that, and they were both convicted of trying to cover up the illegal chase. There is a lot to unpack here. But before we get into the details, I want to know, why should Washingtonians care about this case? This is a historic case. This is the first time that basically anyone can remember in recent memory that a DC police officer has been charged with a death of a civilian while on duty. And certainly the first time they've been convicted of that. All right. Can you walk us through what happened on the day the trial revolved around? It was October 23rd, 2020. On October 23rd of 2020, Members of the crime suppression team for MPD in the 4th Police District were, you know, starting their day, starting their work. One of those officers was Terrence Sutton, and there were four officers on his team who were riding in an unmarked police car in the area. They patrolled in the area of kind of the Kennedy Street corridor, and the crime suppression team's job is different from a typical police, you know, beat officer, patrol officer. They are not responding to 911 calls. They are proactively seeking to reduce crime. So on this day, this group of officers, Terrence Sutton and three others, get some information from a another officer, Catherine Pitt, who says that she saw Karan Hilton Brown earlier in the afternoon get into some kind of a altercation with another person and then leave the area. And then later he comes back to the area and there is some discussion among the officers that, oh, maybe he has returned for some kind of retaliation. There is perhaps some, an incident of violence is about to happen. And so with that information, Officer Sutton and his Lieutenant Andrew Zabatsky, who is the co-defendant in this case, decide, let's go get him. So shortly after this, they hatch this plan. The officers do, in fact, find Karan. He is, I believe, at that point, walking a moped, walking and pushing it. When the officers see Karan and Karan sees the officers, he jumps on the moped. He's on the sidewalk and starts riding it. And from testimony from one of the officers, Officer Sutton says something like, hey, let me holler at you for a minute. Karan says, what do you want? Officer Sutton or one of the other officers says something like, we just want to talk to you. And Karan says something to the effect of off and drives off. 
And uh, there ensues this kind of chase, essentially. This I don't want to call it a game, but for the next two to three and a half minutes, Karan is riding his moped away as Sutton is chasing him, pursuing him through residential streets. At some points, the officers' evidence at trial turned up that the officers reached, I think, as high as 40 miles an hour and were driving down the wrong way down residential streets and through alleys. You can hear at some points in some of the videos played during trial, they kind of cobbled together the whole chase with a combination of body camera video and like residential home surveillance cameras. And there's one particular clip in my mind. The view is from a a home on a residential street of row houses, and you see the moped drive by, and then you see the police car just fly by, and you can hear the engine roar because he's accelerating. And then you hear he he goes out of the screen, but you hear the tires screech as he brakes very suddenly. And that kind of, for me at least, emphasized how quickly he was going and how frantic this pursuit was. Is Hilton Brown on sidewalks the whole time? Uh, He's on the sidewalks and on the streets. It's a little bit of both and through alleys. So the pursuit ends as Karan turns into an alley headed toward Kennedy Street, I think, with Sutton driving fairly close behind him, though there's some dispute about exactly how close he was. But as Karan is about to exit the alley onto Kennedy Street. You can see the brake lights from the moped illuminate, and you can see the speedometer on the police car go up. So Officer Sutton is accelerating as Karan is braking and about to exit the alleyway. Whether Karan knew that he was accelerating, who knows? But the point is Karan exits the alleyway on the moped, and a civilian's vehicle strikes him almost immediately, sending him flying across the width of the alley and onto the pavement. The police car then stopped at the mouth of the alley. All the officers get out and start assessing the the wreckage, the damage. And he was dead. I don't think he was pronounced dead until several hours later in the hospital, but he he had a severe head injury. There was blood gushing out of his head. There was also evidence from the paramedic that he vomited, which... Vomiting is indication of a very severe head injury, according to the paramedic. She testified in court that when she came on the scene and, like, you know, assessed him for a, even a brief minute, she knew that he wasn't going to make it. So the officers are indicted, and the trial begins two years later, 2002. Right. Let's fast forward to that. It lasted a long time. Why? Trials generally take a long time, especially murder trials. But in this case, there were several motions and arguments going back and forth before they even picked a jury and started the official trial. The defense team tried to, at one point, they alleged prosecutorial misconduct and had all these motions that the judge had to decide on before they could actually start the case. There was just a lot of wrangling and arguing about what the jury could actually hear and what was relevant to the charges. When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return. 
which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. You were in the courtroom for the whole trial, right? Most of the trial. I wasn't able to make the entire thing. So paint the scene for us. The judge, the family, the lawyers wrangling with each other. Yeah, yeah. The trial took place in the U.S. District Courthouse at the sort of at the foot of the Capitol building. The judge is Paul Freeman. The lawyer for Terrence Sutton is Michael Hannon. A, a continuation of these motions leading up to trial and these attorneys arguing with each other played out in court as well. And there were several moments where the judge, out of frustration, would get a little testy with some of the attorneys. And I would say, in particular, his ire was directed at Mr. Hannon. And there was one particular scene where the trial is about to start, so the lawyers are you know, preparing their opening statements to give to the jury. There's this list of evidence that the defense wants to get in, wants the jury to hear. And the judge rules that it's not coming in. None of this evidence is coming in. This isn't coming in. That's not coming in. He kind of admonishes Mr. Hannon and says, well, go rewrite your opening statement, which I just thought was a kind of an interesting thing for a judge to say from the bench to admonish a lawyer in that way. So Hilton Brown's mother, Karen Hilton, was in the court, except when she wasn't. T talk about her presence. Right. She sat through, I would say, most of the trial to her credit, I guess, especially considering there was some really difficult testimony and body camera footage shown during the course of it. At one point, defense attorneys, you know, well, several points, actually, they raised to the judge, hey, Karen is looking in our direction, sort of intimidatingly, and she's reacting at some of this difficult testimony and at moments where the body camera footage is particularly difficult to watch. The defense attorney's point was that her reaction in the courtroom is in some way influencing the jury or could perhaps influence the jury. And eventually after, you know, three or four or five times the defense objected, the judge said, okay, that's it. We're going to exclude her from the courtroom. We'll set up a remote courtroom. She'll be able to hear and watch everything that's going on, but it'll be in a different location. So the jury can't see it. And that lasted that ruling barring her from the courtroom lasted for about, I don't know, 12 hours or 18 hours or something. Karen's attorney objected and filed a a whole brief and the judge reversed himself. But yeah, she was in the courtroom for the whole time. And when the verdict was read, she also had a made a bit of a commotion and had to be taken out of the of the courtroom before the proceeding ended. And what do you mean she made a bit of a commotion? What'd she do? She said some curse words and she, you know, just there was an outburst. She was kind of loud and vocal after the verdict was read and she was taken into the custody of US Marshals, I believe, for that evening and was released the next morning with no charges. What was the U.S. Attorney's argument against the police officers? Like, break this down for me. So, Terrence Sutton was charged with second degree murder, uh, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy. With the murder charge, the prosecutors argued that Officer Sutton acted with extreme disregard for the risk of Karan Hilton Brown's life. And except for his actions, Karan would be alive still. 
The obstruction charge, basically, prosecutors presented evidence that the two officers attempted to kind of shield or minimize their involvement in the chase, in the incident that led to Hilton Brown's death. Um, Wait, how'd they do that? You've got body camera images and... Did they try to like hide those or something? They didn't try to hide the body camera, but there are steps that officers generally take, procedures that, that happen after a, a crash, especially a fatal crash. So for example, they didn't take witness statements. The group of officers, the crime suppression team officers, including Sutton and Zabaski, left the scene fairly early and didn't wait for the team of internal investigators to show up. They allowed the striking vehicle to leave the scene. In other words, they didn't preserve evidence. They didn't interview witnesses as they they typically would have. And the argument, I guess the conviction, is that they did this on purpose. Like they knew they screwed up. They did something really bad. And they were like, let's get the stuff out of here. Let's not take statements. Let's basically do all this because otherwise we're going to be in big trouble. Correct. And that was the cover up. And that was also the conspiracy because they were doing it together. Correct. The conspiracy is the, you know, there's agreement between the two of them to then go carry out the obstruction. Yeah. So when the trial happened, some of their MPD colleagues testified for the prosecution, right? And I presume about what the procedure was supposed to be and how it wasn't followed. Correct. On both sides, some officers testified for the prosecution, some testified for the defense. In general, is this a thing where the MPD washed their hands of these guys and said, listen, they were not, these are bad officers. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. They tried to cover stuff up. Or were they, and I'm speaking officially about the MPD, not about the rank and file, or were they backing them up? That's a good question. Uh, Did they get fired? They are fired, yeah. Well, now they are fired with the conviction. But they weren't fired before the conviction. They weren't like immediately fired. They were on some kind of like pending leave status. I, I think it's notable that Assistant Chief Wilfredo Manlapaz, he's a high-ranking officer and is in charge of the Internal Affairs Bureau, which you know investigates things like this, fatal vehicle crashes and uses of force, came in and testified on behalf of Sutton and talked about what a great officer he is, how he was part of a team that reduced crime in the 4th District and is you know just overall a good cop, a good officer. So you talk to a lot of cops, you cover this stuff. What about the rank and file and the union, were people telling you like, these are good cops or were people, I mean, in a lot of cases when there's a police killing, it, it comes out that like all the other cops think like, oh, that guy is a real, you know, right. bad guy. He's done this before and we all knew about it. Is this one of those cases? That That's not my sense. My sense is that Sutton is viewed among most or at least many officers as a good cop, a good, hardworking, competent officer who, you know, knows what he's doing is a sort of a exemplary model officer. So can we talk about defense strategy for a second? Because, you know, their line, the, the line of supporters of these cops was, look, here's a guy, he's riding his moped on the sidewalk, he's speeding in traffic to evade police, he gets hit by a car. And how is that the cop's fault? What did jurors make of that argument? Uh, they didn't buy it, clearly. In closing arguments, you kind of cut right to the heart of it. Mr. Hannon, the attorney for Officer Sutton, sought to focus on Quran and his state of mind and the fact that from Hannon's perspective, Quran's actions were reckless and caused his own death. And if not for him driving recklessly, if he had worn a helmet, if he hadn't ran from the cops, perhaps he would be alive. Um, and he was also doing stuff that endangered civilians on the sidewalk. Yes. Yeah, that's true. So Hannon told the jury to focus on Quran and his actions. 
the prosecutor told the jury to focus on Sutton and his actions, which is, you know, what the law requires them to do. It, it doesn't really matter what Karan was thinking. It matters what Sutton was thinking because he's the one accused of murder. But so DC has, and this makes a lot of sense if you step back and think about it, a, a, basically a no chasing rule. There's only a very small number of circumstances where you can do a high speed chase. Right. Look, it's a, it's an urban, dense area, and we've decided, look, it is not worth the cost and danger to people and property for engaging in high-speed chases outside of like a clear and present danger kind of situation. Can you break down this rule for us? Yeah. So the pursuit policy essentially says that officers may not engage in vehicle chases except for in very limited circumstances which is essentially if they're chasing someone who they know is like really dangerous and is is presenting an immediate threat to officers or the public. And in order to engage in a vehicle chase, the rules say that officers must call into their supervisor, describe the scenario which they think justifies the chase. The supervisor has to okay it. And then they monitor it the entire time and they can call it off then at any time. Notably, Officer Sutton did not call in to his supervisor in this case and just went ahead and he might dispute that I'm calling it a chase or a pursuit. And certainly there was evidence at trial that the defense tried to introduce to undermine this definition of this incident as a pursuit. But there was also a police captain who said this is definitely a pursuit, you know. So well, let me ask you, what's what recourse is there for, you know, you've got this crime suppression team, right? They are told there might be an altercation. They're trying to stop this guy. Mm -hmm. He won't listen to them. He then breaks the law by riding his moped on the sidewalk. It is a danger and he won't stop. What's the, what is the proper recourse for them? Like what should they do to cause this person to either obey the law or obey them? Right. Yeah. It's a good question. Cause you know, think about it. You're, if you're someone who would run from the police, then if you know that this policy exists, then that's a pretty good strategy, right? They can't chase you unless they, unless you're like waving a gun in the air, basically. But the policy says, you know, stop chasing them, go get a warrant, find them later and arrest them, which is actually what one of the officers, Officer Tahara, who's riding in the passenger seat next to Terrence Sutton, said out loud as the chase was going on, we should stop this. We should just write a report, get a warrant and arrest this guy later. I wish it weren't relevant, but it is in the public perception of uh, police killings. But what were the ethnicities of the officers and the victim? Right. Both Officer Sutton and Lieutenant Zabatsky are white, and Karan is a black man. So I'm curious about this. This happened in 2020, the year of George Floyd, the year of massive protests about police misconduct, about police treatment of black people particularly. Mm -hmm. This has not been an event in the city. Yeah. I mean, where you at City Paper were covering this trial quite closely. I don't believe it was intensely covered by the rest of the local media. Why not? Like, what? why did this not sort of rise to that level of outrage? Maybe it has to do with the fact that the trial took place so long after the energy around 2020. I mean, the Derek Chauvin trial in Minnesota was much closer in time to the actual incident when uh, the, the killing of George Floyd, you know, people get burned out. Perhaps that's an explanation. There also wasn't, you know, if we're going to compare it to the the George Floyd case, there was very clear video of this officer literally extinguishing the life of this man with his knee. And there just wasn't that kind of like raw footage in this case, at least that was released to the public initially. So maybe that has something to do with it. I honestly don't know. How much jail time are these 
people facing and where would they face it? Officer Sutton faces a maximum combined sentence of 65 years. They have yet to set a sentencing date, and it won't be for another several months. The judge has just released in early January a schedule for post-conviction motions. In other words, if the officers wish to appeal or raise any issues that happened during the trial, they will do that in the course of the next two or three months. A sentencing likely won't happen in, even until after that. And in the meantime, the officers remain out of custody. Do you get the sense they're going to appeal? Oh, yes. They most certainly will. Mitch Riles from Washington City Paper, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And before you head out, here is some quick news. A mobile grocery truck called Curbside Groceries has started parking in the Bellevue neighborhood of Southeast D.C. on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. It is there to fill the gap that was left after Good Foods Market, which is the only grocery store in the area, stopped selling produce back in November. Meanwhile, Alexandria is considering implementing a no-turn-on-red rule at a few intersections as part of an effort to clamp down on crashes. The city says that since 2016, over a dozen people have been injured while walking on Patrick Street and Henry Street in Old Town. And lastly, D.C. unemployment is the lowest it's been since the late 1980s. That's according to a new report from the city. Fewer than 5% of Washingtonians are out of work right now. But unemployment here is, unfortunately, still a whole percentage point higher than the national average. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. I'm Michael Schaefer from Politico. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend and leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye.